Welcome to the Best of MBS podcast, a collection of the best interviews hosted by Michael Bungay-Stanier, best-selling author of The Coaching Habit and How to Begin. Today's interview is from the Find Your Great Work interview series. Here's your host, MBS. So way back in the late 90s, I was working in Boston at the time. I was working for a change management consultancy. And uh, I had this inclination that uh, facilitation was important. I knew that I was quite good at it and I liked it. I also had an inkling that I didn't know everything there was to know about facilitation. And gosh, how true that was. And I bumped into somebody. I had a coffee because when you arrive in a new city, that's what you do. You go out and meet people and have coffees. And he thrust a book into my hands. It was a book called Future Search. And I was like, oh, this looks interesting. And when I started to read it, pow, the top of my head basically came off because this, for the first time, was a systemic, generous approach to facilitation that just turned up and defied convention in terms of a lot of the norms about what you do as a teacher and a facilitator, which is you know, often controlling the people, controlling the process, controlling the outcome that makes you feel safer and makes you feel better. And actually, Future Search turned out to be one of a number of um, approaches to this style of thinking. I've actually got a, a book, one of the few books that's lasted more than two decades on my, on my bookshelf called The Change Handbook, which is a collection of group methods for shaping the future. But all of this to say is I'm really happy to be talking to two of the founders of Future Search, in fact, the two founders of Future Search, Marvin Weisberg and Sandra Janoff today. Now, they have a new book out, which I've read and I've really enjoyed. It's called Lead More, Control Less, Eight Advanced Leadership Skills That Overturn Convention. And what we're going to do is we're going to jump into this conversation with Marv and with Sandra to really talk about how they founded the, uh, the international nonprofit Future Search Network, but also how these starting point around facilitating large-scale, large-group meetings has led them to this path around new insights and new approaches and new ways of thinking about leadership. So Marvin and Sandra, welcome to the call. I'm really excited to have you on the line with us today. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, I'm here. We're happy to be with you. Uh, Fantastic. Appreciate that uh, enthusiastic testimonial as well. It's, it's, it's very validating to us to hear experienced people resonate to our work. So Marvin, let me start with you and then I'll ask Sandra the same question. Is there anything else that I, I could have covered in that introduction or anything else you'd like people to know about who you are and how you got here so they have a sense of who you are? If I think we're, if we're off to a good start, Michael. <laughs> okay, that's perfect. Let's see what you'd like to talk about. We, we can go in a great many directions. We, we sure can. And, you know, one of the things that we do at Boxer Crowns, in fact, the other thing we do is we teach busy managers practical coaching skills. And that sounds easy in theory because it's like, you know, in theory, it's, you know, be a little bit more curious and give a little less advice. But actually, to actually make that behavior change is quite tricky because at its heart is about giving up some power, giving up some sense of control. And in the introduction to your book, you talk about self-control is the best control. And Sandra, let me ask you this question. Why, why have you started this conversation in this book by focusing on the importance of control? I want to respond to what you were saying about how difficult it is for busy managers. Um, 
it takes a lot of self-awareness and um, just uh, connecting to who you are and what you're doing. And uh, of course, as a human being, but as a leader, and it's when things get very busy and stressful, you really call them to act in a way that's counter to what an impulse may be. Um, so that's what we're asking of leaders because we've asked it, asked, we've asked it of ourselves through the years. When, when Marm and I started working together in the late 80s, early 90s, and, and uh, we're facilitating side by side, um, there was something that we were both thinking and doing that we hadn't articulated, but it was very much um, congruent. And we, will, it, we, we really were, um, I guess you can call it in the same wavelength, but working from the same set of principles, mm. which is that people really have capacity and they're smart. And if we can create structures that enable them to do what they came to do, maybe really good things will happen, and it did. And um, that get that's reinforcing when you have that experience. And, and I'll just add, one of our early future searches, um, we were thanked for getting out of the way. Right. Well, maybe maybe to give people that, the context, and I realize I could have done this earlier, but can you describe just what the whole sense of future search is? What, what, when, you, when you're running an experience, a future search experience, give people a kind of summary of what's involved and how that might be different from a typical meeting. Well, well, future search, from our point of view, at its simplest, it's a two-and-a-half or three-day strategic planning meeting. Mm. And what makes it uh, somewhat unusual is having what we call the whole system in the room. And by that, we mean people who collectively have among them formal authority to, to act, necessary expertise, the resources that might be required to do anything new, and the people who have who will be affected by whatever decisions are made or whatever problems are solved. And if you can get any any group of people together who collectively have that range of experience and authority over any given issue, you can in a very short time move that activity or that issue or that problem much further than anyone's been able to move it before. And I think that's the best. Mm. The simple word is a three-day planning meeting. Yeah. But it's also, we see it also as a as a, a theory and philosophy of facilitating, which you've touched on. For sure. That includes helping people to discover what it is they're capable of already that they didn't know they could do and then creating structures that enable them to actually do it. And then at the third level, and this because this uh, gets at the network, why we have this international network of practitioners, is that any one of us, you, me, Sandra, or anybody who does this work, has a very limited capability to change the world. Right. But we can only do what we do one meeting at a time. And one meeting is a drop in the bucket. But collectively, to the extent that we share our knowledge and we compare notes and we enhance each other's work, collectively, we can make a pretty big ripple in society. And that's what we've been 
shooting for the last 20 years, and so have a lot of our colleagues. And we couldn't do anything by ourselves. You know, working alone, your practice is very, very limited. It's like playing basketball in the backyard without a team. <laughs> I, I have this imagination of that when you come to talk to people in different organizations, and you've worked from anybody from IKEA through UNICEF, and you start talking about getting the whole system in the room and people go, well, okay, that makes sense to me. I can understand why that might be the case. But also you then would suggest to the leader or the sponsor of this that, you know, you have to give up a degree of control around the process, a degree of control around the outcome. And I can imagine the leader on the other side of the desk suddenly looking a whole lot less comfortable about this process. So how do you coach or convince or influence managers to give up the sense of control and power and status that they might have to allow an experience like this to take place? I think what we're doing, um, especially with Lead More, Control Less, mm. a new book whose publication date was yesterday. So Hooray. Hooray. <laughs> I think what we're doing is, um, is, is a one-step-at-a-time process or uh, maybe expanding a horizon, because we know for sure that there is um, a small, I say cohort, I don't know who they are, but of leaders with the courage to change their system by bringing all of, bringing their representative, bringing their stakeholders together for this kind of dialogue and discovery. But in the work that we've been doing for 25 years, we know that the message is for leaders who come in in the morning, leave at night, and have any number of meetings, different kinds, different shapes, different formats, to do the work they have to do because the work of the world gets done in meetings. And and our message to them is no matter what you're doing, how you who you're doing it with, this is these skills that we present really can overturn conventional practice and support you in both liberating yourself and getting the work done. That's so, and, and our future search is one opportunity for them. And so maybe when they're ready, when pe when leaders are ready, they see the benefit of future search. Maybe we're getting them at the front end. You know, but we're not asking people to become future searchers or even to implement that particular model. That's been a kind of learning laboratory for us, right? which really highlights in a short time the efficacy of these skills in, in groups of people who may never have met together, who may be very diverse in terms of their educational background, their ages, their ethnicity, even languages. We have five or six different languages in the room frequently. Mm -hmm. It found that by uh, helping people to access their own experience instead of needing to master our theories about what that experience should be. We've been able to really open doors that we didn't know were openable until we'd done this over a period of years and began to realize that we had a, a potential way of working in, in unfamiliar cultures and with just about anybody anywhere in the world without having enter into their culture, which we will never do. I mean, that's a, we know that we know we can't do that, but we do know 
how to help people anywhere in the world to do what they're trying to do if they're really committed to wanting to do that. But to get back to your earlier question about convincing or influencing, mm -hmm. um, one of the messages that we deliver, to, but every everybody worries about losing control. We worry about it, and everybody we work with worries about it. And the more responsibility an executive person has, the more they worry about it because they're afraid, especially in very large room meetings, that if they open up the meeting, it will become a lightning rod for every issue that anybody ever had. Right. And they're right. It can be. However, if they really want change, and that's the big question is the big if, mm. how committed are you to change? If, you, if that's true, innovation, change, then you have to do something you never did before. Right. That's the definition. <laughs> right. It's, so why uh, so like, are you up for yeah. this situation? Could you do something you never did before? It doesn't have to be highly risky, but getting everybody there is one of those things because if you're just going to bring in the same old crowd, I don't care what content you introduce or how many theories or how many steps or how many methods or how many worksheets, they're going to end up uh, replicating the same dynamics that this group always replicates, always, you know. And, and a good deal of what I thought came out through the book is this focus on structure uh, as a deeper driving force for leadership and change than content. Uh, and the, because if the structure is not right, it's the Canadian, you know, the medium is the message. You have to make sure the medium reflects the experience that you're trying to create. And, you know, one of the of the eight of the eight uh, principles that you laid out, and they're all they're all they're all intriguing, but one of them caught my eye in part because Peter Block's a, an influence and a hero of mine, and I remember Peter once saying he saw his role, his work as giving people responsibility for their own freedom. So that was a powerful yeah. phrase, and you know your second principle is let everyone be responsible. So tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that. I mean, surely people are showing up and they're fairly responsible anyway in their working day. And and how often are they given the opportunity to really extend the reach of responsibility that they have? And um, and I think that's part of our message, which is what are the different mechanisms that are, are not even complicated, are relatively simple that share the work, share the responsibility, share the ownership, um, and enable the leader to do less so that others can do more. It's and, and let's say it's a belief, it's a philosophy. If you really do believe deep in your heart that people are doing the best they can with what they have, as opposed to trying to make them be different human beings, mm. um, then you've taken a step. And we know that it takes great courage to do that. It takes great self-awareness. And maybe it takes biting your tongue. Um, and those are the leadership skills. But but the more a leader is able to take a step in that direction, the more they, they discover the freedom. And, and you know, leadership is an interesting game. The people who succeed as leaders tend to be highly conscientious and highly driven uh, and often meticulous people. Mm. 
who tend to details, who are on top of things, and who put really high expectations on themselves. Mm. And therefore, they also expect a lot from other people. And one of the dynamics that we became aware of early in the game, we started working together in large groups with large groups, is the more we do for people, the less they are willing to do for themselves. The more responsibility we take for moving flip charts around on the wall or writing them up or telling people how to do whatever it is they do, the more dependent they become and the, and the more they de-skill themselves. And I think that, no, Peter, Peter Block was onto that a long time ago. Mm -hmm. Peter and I worked together for 20 years. That's right. As you may know. Yes. I learned a great deal of working with him about these issues early in my career, for which I'll be forever grateful. But, but the, so the, one of the pitfalls of leadership is creating the kind of dependency that you oppose. Because the people that you lead end up saying, well, gee whiz, he treats us like children. And when you talk to the leader privately, the leader says, well, you know, I have to do that because they act like children. <laughs> right. We're all part of the same game. But here's a, here's a challenge, of course. When you say to the leader, you go, okay, so perhaps you need to invite them to step forward, stop treating them like children to break this cycle. Yeah. They're like, well, you know, that's good in theory, Marv, but that the thought of that makes me feel quite anxious because who knows what's going to happen. They're probably going to let me down. The, the ship will sink. Everybody will drown. It will be a disaster. And it will be my fault. And it will be my fault, exactly. I cannot afford to allow that to happen because it's my responsibility to keep the ship floating. Now, the, your third principle is actually consider anxiety to be blocked excitement. So what's the connection between the anxiety I'm feeling now and blocked excitement? Well, there's a direct connection. <laughs> because, um, again, I think I've been saying this a couple of times, it really is the leader's job. It is what the leader is paid for it to, con to contain that anxiety because everyone is anxious. Everyone is in the same unknown. And there has to be at least one person who has the faith that something will happen here. And, I'm, and it really is about faith. It's like bottom line, because all of the words that you were using, they'll let me down, it will fall apart, I'm going to be blamed, etc. They're all what we call negative predictions. Mm-hmm. They are, they're not happening now. There's this jump into the future, a negative scenario. You end up feeling as bad as if it really happened, and it shifts your whole frame. So these skills, these learnings, the, the waiting, the not jumping in with the smart thing that a leader has to say, because it, it's always smart, but the holding back, the rating, the containing to enable others to have that space to jump in. They're very big inner interventions. They're counterintuitive, and they're important. So nobody says that this is easy work, but it calls on us to live in that unknown. There is nothing that's predictable. Let's, let's get used to that. And, and there's some very proactive ways that we've learned to manage our anxiety. I'll... I'll uh, sketch out a scenario that we've played out many times, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, Michael. Uh, we've done a lot of consultant training over the years, mm. and uh, not just in future search, but more generally consulting skills the way Peter Block talks about them. 
in his books. And if you have a room full of 50 consultants and you're trying to help them become better at what they do, any uh, exercise or activity you propose is going to elicit at least 40 or 50 better ways to do it. <laughs> and so if you get into that game and say, okay, let's try this, people say, yeah, I want it different, but that's not what I had in mind. Well, how about trying that? And someone else says, no, I tried that and I don't like that. Well, how about this? No, that won't work either. You could, you know, you, then you feel helpless, frustrated, defeated, and you say, gee, I'm really lousy at this. What we've learned to do is to say, okay, everybody, that was a proposal. Let's stop. You're all experienced consultants sitting here. You've been there a million times. You're right now. Put yourself in the situation you're in right now that we're in. What would you do? <laughs> Let's hear it. I want to go around the room and hear from each one of you what you would do now. <laughs> right. And then people begin to get the idea that this is not our responsibility to make this happen, that there are a lot of possibilities. And the question remains. Usually you go around the room and people now have a pretty good idea of what they're ready, willing, and able to do. But if they don't, and if there are still 20 ideas on the table, you say, okay, how shall we make this decision? Is it a vote? Do we put them in a hat and pull them out of a hat? Or do we form 20 groups and let each of you do whatever it is you want to do? What would you like to do? I mean, it's interesting that a lot of what you're proposing, it's interesting that a lot of what you're proposing in the way you're, you're framing leadership and, of course, through the facilitation skills as well, it kind of connects interestingly with kind of what neuroscience tells us about what keeps people engaged or disengaged. Mm -hmm. um, on the one hand, autonomy is a great driver of engagement. And one of the things that you role model in the book and in the work that you do is constantly giving people choices that allow the, and respect the autonomy that they have. Fantastic. But here's what's interesting for me. One of the other drivers for engagement at a neurological level is certainty. You know, do I have clear expectations about what's about to happen? Yeah. And one of the things you're inviting people to do is actually stay in a place of ambiguity for a longer, uh, a lack of certainty, with the kind of insight that if you can just stay in that place of ambiguity longer, where you end up popping out might be a more interesting place. I mean, think. Dependable. Yeah, yeah. Think about it. Think about it. Uh, what does certainty really mean? I mean, it's it. What we've always wanted to deal with is reality mm. and to data check. What do we know? What are the, what, what information do we have? What does it mean to us? Um, but when we deal with that, then, then we can struggle together. And when people struggle together, this kind of confusion place, that's when you come up. The potential is really high there to come up with something that is innovative and creative. And if you think about creativity, it doesn't happen in a blink of an eye. It really takes time and it takes permission from those, whoever is in charge or whatever leadership says to say, we have the time, we have the space, and we have the permission to not rush to solution, but to think about it, to mm -hmm. really kind of explore. And that's the kind of authority, the authority that holds the structure creates structure that's meaningful, 
um, does not uh, kind of get hooked, but yeah, doesn't panic or get right. other word we use, and we didn't put it in the book, who doesn't splat. Right. I love that. Uh, yeah, by splat, is there is no question that everyone in a leadership position has their own anxiety to deal with, but don't. Don't, don't, push. don't dump it on the group. They, right. they need you. And that's a, that's being a dependable authority because in truth, we live in uncertainty. Let's learn to deal with it, and to deal with it is to manage the that turbulence of the unknown. Yeah, and I want to add uh, something. I want to pose an alternative to that earlier scenario that I sketched out about what happens in a room full of consultants. Consultants mm-hmm. are, by definition, autonomous individual performers. They're a lot like medical doctors. They're a lot like many lawyers, engineers, architects, and other professionals whose work is largely individual. There's, there's When there's relatively low interdependence, you're much less likely to get people converging on solutions that suit them all. But the opposite scenario is one that's experienced by a lot of leaders in the business world, in the education world, the nonprofit world, where they're leading groups of people who are interdependent in the sense that none of them can accomplish their best work without cooperating, cooperation from the others in the room. Now, right. in that situation, and you're the authority figure, the projections that you draw, the authority projections you draw, may lead pe- people to paralyze themselves, not to have 50 ideas, but to sit on the ideas that they have. And you, and you get a couple different kinds of reactions. You may get tonal passivity, right, which is very common, especially in new situations where people don't know who you are. Or you might get counterdependence from people who are highly anti-authoritarian who really will take you on to see how, how tough you are. Right. And, and in the middle, you get people who are relatively indifferent. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, they're sitting there waiting to see which way this is going to go and how you're going to handle it. And our message, and we have a chapter that, that discusses this, is don't take it personally. Yeah. Right. The role, it's not you. And when you don't take it personally as a leader, then you're not hooked by it. And you're not off off task and into this relationship that really is has nothing to do or has much to do with authority issues that, that, that are not even yours. Well, I think there's a nice connection there. I mean, the, your first principle is control structure, not people. So you've got that structural insight. Then you understand that any anxiety you might be feeling is more about your role within that structure rather than you personally. So you don't need to take it personally because it's just because you're in that space at that time playing that role that that's how the system is going to react to you. So of course that's going to happen. It's not about you. It's just about the hat you happen to be wearing. Yes. And I think it's important to note what, what it is we mean by structure. It's instead of trying to control people, we want to control the heck out of the conditions under which people interact with each other. Right. Because that's the key to whether they're going to make, whether they're going to get into a fight mode or a dependency mode or a, create, or a creative problem-solving mode. And what are the conditions we can control? We can control the time. We can control the focus on the goal. And we can control the space where, where they 
where we have our encounter, whether it's meeting with one person or five or 150. We have some influence over those factors, and we should pay attention to them because they all make a difference in the way people interact. And once they're in the room together, we have a lot of control over who gets to speak and when they speak, and and even whether they speak. And unless we are ready to shut up and endure some silence and let people think we're never likely to experience the capability that people really have. And so we're unlikely to develop the faith that we need that others can do it in order to be good leaders. The only way to develop that faith is to let people do things you may have thought they couldn't do and see what happens. And to to be quiet for 10 seconds longer than you could bear. Right. Or, you know, things we've learned to do is, okay, everybody's pretty quiet now. Why don't you talk to your neighbor for a minute or two? See what's going on here. And then, you know, and then say, okay, what have you been talking about? And sometimes it's amazing what happens. It is. It's funny. It it even comes, it comes, it it includes these big psychological self-awareness issues and the small ones, which by the way, were on that point as well, which is starting a meeting on time and ending a meeting on time. Right. All of those things make a difference when, and to be conscious about that is a good thing. If I were leading a business again, I had a team of 10 people. I don't think I would ever, ever do anything of consequence, no matter what time frame I had available, whether it was an hour or a day or a week, without hearing from everybody in the room. I just would never do it. Yeah. And and we would discover in hearing from everybody in the room that collectively we all know a great deal more than any one of us knew when this meeting started. That's a hell of an insight. <laughs> and it's probably the perfect insight to finish this conversation because it kind of ends us on exactly how everybody who's been listening is feeling, which is, I now know more, having heard the collective wisdom of the two of you sharing that. So thank you. Um, thank you, Michael. And Michael, also thank you for that new new take on Marshall McLuhan. Oh, right. Never, never occurred to me in a million years, but I like it very much. Well, Marvin and Sandra, for people who want to find out more about the book and also more about the Future Search Network and the work you do, where can where would you direct them on the web? How can they find out more about who you are and what you do? FutureSearch.net is our website. Sjanoff at FutureSearch.net is my email. Brilliant. And we're very happy to talk to anyone that is interested. And I'm, I'm M. Weisport at futuresearch.net. And you can also put in the name of the book, Lead More, Control Less, and you'll find already that there are a number of really good reviews on Amazon. Yes, fantastic. Well, congratulations on getting the book out because, you know, having written a few books of my own, I know what a challenge it is to get anything across the finishing line and then even more to get it out that people read it. And so I think it's a wonderful book. I really enjoyed it. I, I You were preaching to the converted here. Um, here and good luck with yours as well. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the invite. It's likely a pleasure. Nice to know you. We hope you enjoyed this best of MBS interview. 
Want more great content? Head to mbs.works. There you'll find MBS's new podcast, Two Pages. You can learn about his best-selling books, and you can join the newsletter. That's mbs.works.